The Inter-American Development Bank, the IDB, says its mission is to improve lives in Latin America and the Caribbean, support countries working to reduce poverty and inequality, and achieve development in a sustainable, climate-friendly way. For the past two years, for the first time in its 62-year history, the IDB has had an American president, Mauricio Claver Corone. His goals, as I understand them, have included implementing policies beneficial to the United States and countering Beijing's push for influence and privileges at the bank. He also ended the practice of Latin American governments using the IDB for patronage jobs, a place to park cronies and politically connected but mediocre economists, including those from the region's socialist and anti-American countries. His reward? He's been fired by the Biden administration, China's rulers, and the leftist regimes of Latin America are undoubtedly celebrating. Mr. Clave Corone joins us to tell his story and discuss what he thinks is happening at the IDB. I'm glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. So first, welcome. Thank you. And full disclosure, we know each other a bit, not well, but we had lunch together it was about a year ago, I think. Yeah. And I think it was my first post pandemic indoor lunch I had and with you. you. Tie. And, and I guess I was very impressed by what you told me about what you were doing at the bank and what you were striving to do. I thought it really gave me, I was encouraged. Wow, something good is going on. I also want to give credit where it's due here. Mary Anastasio Grady writes the Americas column for the Wall Street Journal. I find it an excellent resource for keeping up on Latin America, which candidly falls on my list, you know, somewhat lower than the Middle East and China and Russia and even Europe. So in late September, she wrote a column calling the reasons given for your dismissal, I quote, hooey, hooey. And she called you a disruptor. And she said that the Biden administration, quote, simply refused to stand for it. One more point. There are people I know in the international banking world, people whose judgment I trust, who tell me they believe you've been smeared. If you read the news stories, and I'll quote from those in a moment, well, I'll be blunt. They make it seem like you're a pretty bad guy. And they don't take your denials of the charges against you very seriously. All right. So I want to give you a chance to tell your story. But let's begin at the beginning, because most people, I think even the wonky types types who, who listen to Foreign Policy, may not know much about the Inter-American Development Bank. So tell us, what is the IDB supposed to do, and what has it been doing over the years, and what did you change when you moved into the corner office? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much, Cliff, and really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. And thank you for all the great work that you do uh, all over the world, the Middle East uh, and other parts of the world, Asia, uh, but also Increasingly in Latin America, I've been following uh, the foundation's work on Latin America. You're doing a, a lot more, uh, and and we're better for it. So thank you uh, for that in that regards. Look, the Inter-American Development Bank was founded in 1959, and the irony is that it was founded. It was the idea of a Brazilian diplomat, uh, Kubitschek, uh, and and it had been an idea that had been around really for decades of some type of development institution that would be uh, to serve the Americas, etc. But it wasn't really until the Cuban Revolution in 1959. That then President Eisenhower said, wow, we need to do something and move fast. So ironically, the Inter-American Development Bank was created in 1959 right here in Washington, D.C. by President Eisenhower and uh, uh, Kubitschek in order – and then obviously all the countries in the region that began to join – in order to counter the growing communist threat in the region by providing development support and financing uh, for the region. no one would have imagined that, you know, 60 years later, uh, essentially most of the influence in the bank would have been held by China, right? Which was the great irony. We have to get to that in a minute, but yeah. yeah. How actually I ended up where I I ended up. Um, But ultimately, you know, over the years, it became, it was really kind of an infrastructure bank. Uh, And it's the international financial institution where the United States has the largest shareholding. It has 30% of the shareholding in the World Bank, in the Asian Development Bank, African, uh, even in the IMF. Um, we have about 15%. So the international financial institution where the United States has the largest shareholding is the Inter-American Development Bank uh, in that regard. So it plays an outsized role. Yet the United States really over the last 20, 30 years hasn't given, and sometimes for good reason, the Inter-American Development Bank, the prominence, the priority that it merits, right? And that's how then China caught on and used it as its conduit. And we'll get to that um, moving forward. 
But really for the first 40 uh, years or so of it, it became, it, it was a bank that really provided infrastructure support. So think of traditional bridges, highways, uh, et cetera. Um, there was times in the 80s when it was a little bit controversial uh, because it became somewhat ideological. It's a very politicized institution. I think of all of the international financial institutions, I had the pleasure of serving as the U.S. representative at the International Monetary Fund in the previous administration. And even though there you have obviously countries, complex countries like Iran and China and Russia, et cetera, really the politics aren't injected into the daily kind of meetings and the daily communications and the daily kind of technical uh, assessments, et cetera, as I've seen in the inter-American development. And it's America's politics or the various governments of Latin America? Various Who's politics? The governments, yeah. The, the governments, governments. Yeah. And, and by I the way, the, the, this is when we when you talk about these development projects, the bridges, whatever, the U.S. is lending money or making grants. And it's mostly, again, mostly it's going to be American money, is it not? Yeah, so ultimately as a 30% shareholder, most of the money uh, that came in from the capital increases, the successive capital increases throughout the years, mostly came from the United States. Now, one of the first episodes uh, whereby the United States kind of ran into uh, kind of a wall, political wall with the Inter-American Development Act was in the 1980s when it was supporting the Sandinista government in Nicaragua in the 1980s. And there was a famous the moment. The bank was supporting yeah. the Sandinistas. And, and, and by the way, something very interesting here about the bank. In 62 years, the bank has only had – I was the fifth president. So the previous four, like literally the presidents were there for 15 to 20 years. The, the one who spent the longest was actually a Mexican in the 70s and the 80s called Ortiz Mena. And he had spent almost 20 years. And ultimately, the only reason he left was essentially because of the support for the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And ultimately, Jim Baker said, enough is enough. We're not going to support any budget for the IDB until we have a change in leadership. And then ultimately, there was a change in leadership uh, there at the time. So it hasn't been immune to politics uh, in the past. Uh, it's kind of, kind of then been under the radar. But really, the United States by not playing an outsized role uh, other than uh, that period of time during the Cold War, really allowed for the bank to be controlled by the big three countries in the region, Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil. And even though arguably you can say that today, those are the countries that probably need a development bank less than uh, the smaller countries in the region, which is kind of what I ran on, actually, um, they controlled over 60% of the financing from the bank. And at the end of the day, there's not enough really financing at a development bank scale that you can do to really make an impact, a development impact in those countries, which has been one of the problems whereby the bank hasn't been modernized, right? We're in 2022, but it still operates like it's in 1962. The classification of countries, the way the business the mentality, the control of the big three countries, all of that is still very stuck in the 1960s. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I was going to do and actually got approved at our most recent annual meeting was a reform of the bank to actually update the country, uh, update the bank to the 21st century and rearrange the classification of countries so that the smaller countries, which are 19 out of the 26 borrowing nations, could benefit more uh, from, from the financing. And so that Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil wouldn't not only benefit from all the financing, but the control of the bank. Um, where I ran into a lot of walls head on early on was breaking that 60-year control that Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico had from the senior executive positions. Believe it or not, there had never been a vice president at the bank from a small country in the region, which are 19 out of the 26. Uh, there had never been a, a, a vice president. I brought in all the vice presidents from small countries. Um, the patronage politics, which you mentioned early on, was keen. I mean, the way it worked, it was kind of the place where they owned, controlled, where they uh, had the ability to bring in and have all of their 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 political friends, you know, hide out. Um, it was a place where, you know, essentially through technical assistance, quote unquote, and through the hiring of all friends as consultants, et cetera, you were able to gain a benefit. Um, and the United States, frankly just was never able to have the eyes and ears in the bank that it should have had, right? Uh, as the first American president, I did. Uh, and then in two years, we, you know, we, 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 we broke a lot of China, no pun intended. Uh, and ultimately, and ultimately um, it's not a surprise, you know, it's not a surprise that 
when the reforms that we put together that would have modernized the bank, that would have diminished the power that those big countries have, that would have diminished the role that China's had now in the bank over the last 10 years, and we can get to that, um, that the day that that was approved, literally the day after the anonymous letter alleging the misconduct, quote unquote, by myself is, is landing. Okay. And before you had this job, just very briefly, I know you worked in the Treasury Department, you have a law degree, you were a professor, you worked at the National Security Council. I mean, you've got a fairly good background in go- in government, and somehow you came to the attention of President Trump, and he put you up for this job, and you won the and you won election. Yes. Yeah. So it kind of it was kind of happenstance, right? Um, when I first went to the administration, I went to the Treasury Department. I was one of the first uh, uh, officials to actually walk into the department in January of 2017. And one of the first things that landed on my desk was that the 60th anniversary celebration of the Inter-American Development Bank. So essentially, that bank that was founded in 1959 to counter communist influence, etc. That the 60th anniversary event and celebration was going to be held in Chengdu, China. <laughs> and I remember saying, no, I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> and you know, all of the bureaucrats at Treasury saying, oh no, but it's it's already been a- agreed to. I said, well, we have to change this. And that was the first time, look, admittedly, I hadn't followed the bank closely in the past. And that really just opened my eyes to seeing, hey, what's been going on here? Like, how do we this get is when you were to that? In the, I was in Treasury Department in 2017. Just Treasury Department. You weren't there yet. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I, I was just, yeah, I was already- right. This uh, is in 2019, uh, in, in right? 2017. So this was, this was yeah. January yeah, 2017. Yeah. And then that made me want to learn more of what's been happening over the last 10 years. And what I learned is astonishing. Like, the history of the Inter-American Development Bank over the last- 20 years is should raise alarm bells for the entire international financial architecture and system. Let me just kind of give you an example here. In 2008, obviously there was the financial crisis that took place. The Inter-American Development Bank was the only, well, not the only, but it was the iffy that was most exposed to subprimes. It was very poorly run and it was in the red by around $500 million. It was exposed to nationwide. That raised a lot of alarm bells, saying what's going on? You know, How is it that an international financial institution is exposed to subprimes to this degree? And the current president at the time, who was a, a Colombian, former Colombian diplomat, uh, Luis Alberto Moreno, who at the time when he was ambassador, he purported to be the best friend of the United States and a great ally went to the United States Treasury and said, we need a capital increase. If not, the bank is just going to fail. Like we're, it's, it's going to, I mean, we, it can't, it can't sustain itself. And his job was on the line. He was going to get uh, released for financial mismanagement. United States Treasury, obviously we had a financial crisis here, didn't like how the bank was being run and said, we're not going to go rescue. I mean, probably one bank that didn't get rescued in 2008 at the time <laughs> said, hey, no, we're not going to do a capital increase in the time. So he was desperate and needed someone to bail out the IDB. So China comes knocking and China says, I want to buy some shares in the bank. And at the time, China was just starting to look at Latin America and the Caribbean, was just really starting to create its kind of strategic advance in the region. And, but it's difficult because all the shares are taken, right? So how do you give China some shares without a process whereby there's delusion, et cetera. So there was 0.004% shares that had been left over that Macedonia had not paid in. There are 48 countries that are members of the bank from Latin America and the Caribbean, Asia, and Europe. So China comes in and says, okay, we're going to get, we'll take those 0.004% shares, which the value of them are worth like six, six to $10 million at most. And, but we'll pay an admission fee, quote unquote. The only of the four, the only one of the 48 countries that are shareholders to have paid an admission fee 
to become a member of the bank was China. And guess how much the admission fee was? Maybe close to $500 million. Maybe close to the $500 million. Just a wild guess. Yes, just happened to do so. So China bailed out the bank. And from that time on, essentially the bank, where the United States has a 30% shareholding and China had a 0.004% shareholding, becomes literally the conduit for China into Latin America and the Caribbean. By the way, that was an institutional kickback. You know, and I've said it and I've gotten a lot of crap for it. And it's just a quick meaning they gave money in that could be used in various ways for patronage and for 100%. that. Yeah, whatever 100%. people, whatever you needed. Right, right. But here's the deal. China got that back and then some. Because then ultimately what they did was they created three side funds in the bank to then co-finance projects throughout the region. And- you know, all of these projects and, you know, you guys have written about it and you hear a lot in the media about these Chinese infrastructure projects in Latin America and the Caribbean. There's probably not one single Chinese infrastructure project in the region whereby the IDB did not play a role in co-financing, in procurement, etc. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the United States indirectly co-financed China's expansion into Latin America and the Caribbean. We did with our money. So they created these three funds, put $3 billion in. And literally, you literally start seeing, remember, this was in 2009. They become members officially January 2009. And if you look at the numbers of like investment from China in the region, it's over 2010, 11, 12, where it literally just skyrockets. It's just literally just, just skyrockets with the help of the Inter-American Development Bank, where the United States owned 30%. Three funds created. Then, I mean, I could tell you stories. Procurement. Chinese companies then over the last 10 years got 10 times more procurement than U.S. firms. Procuring uh, what? So essentially projects that were done by the IDB, infrastructure projects, Chinese firms were hired. Chinese firms were hired. Became the largest non-regional recipient of procurement contracts. Chinese firms had a field day with the bank. Like we paid for all of that. 10 times more than U.S. firms. Crazy. Well, we're a 30% shareholder. Ultimately, the merge out then, the bank goes in 2015. Obviously, China wanted more. They wanted to control that whole private sector side. The only international financial institution that has a merged out private sector arm is the World Bank. It has the International Finance Corporation, the IFC. So the IDB, though it wasn't a good idea because ultimately it costs more, followed that model and merged out a private sector arm, which we called IDB Invest. The only reason that merge out took place in 2015 was so that China can come in and become a 5% shareholder and the largest non-regional shareholder mm-hmm. as such. And then literally all of those private sector projects, one way or another, had a Chinese fingerprint on it. And then they played an outsized role there. To the Obama administration's credit at the time, they finally caught on. And in 2015, they said, we're not going to participate in this charade. And the U.S. shareholding in the private sector arm in IDB Invest went down from 30% to 15%. Japan also got diluted, and so did Spain. But China had a field day. Mm. One of the things that we had been successful- So so the U.S. reaction in the Obama administration was recognize that this is a problem and then sort of, okay, we're not going to fight them. We're just going to kind of back out. But that leaves the field to the Chinese to take over. And and they had a field day. By the way, to the point, like to the point of ridiculousness, right? Like to the point, I mean, the 60th anniversary in Chengdu is just kind of- that's just kind of the icing on the cake. Did that happen or did you uh, just stop? No, it? so we stopped that. Um, and that's when then kind of my my foray uh, of kind of um, – and 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 my uh, kind of a conflict with my predecessor then eventually culminated in and, – and I'll tell you how we got there. But, but ultimately, it got to the point of ridiculousness whereby – I'll tell you just a really fascinating story. Yeah. The first time that – the Chinese were exposed in Latin America and the Caribbean for their exploitive practices was in Bahamas. There was a project called Bahamar, which was a big, huge resort. It was a multi-billion dollar resort. And in 2015, they had gotten a lot of bad press because it was shown that all of the labor 
to create Bahamar weren't Bahamian, were all Chinese. So it was the first time that the media had, had caught on to kind of the Chinese government's gimmick of you do these projects, but you bring in Chinese forced labor right. to do them. Right. Obviously, the reputation of the Chinese government was tarnished for the first time. They were really nervous. And then how were they going to deal with this in Latin America and the Caribbean where they were taking on so many projects and then people were going to become weary because they were going to get pressure. By the way, that almost actually, it eventually did topple that government in the Bahamas. Yes. So ultimately- That's so why it did, toppled that government in the well, Bahamas because it, it was recognized that the, the government- The Bahamians would, didn't benefit from it. We didn't benefit and which means, which suggests that the government is saying to the Chinese, well, you can do this, but- Somebody needs to benefit, and it's probably. I mean, we know. I think that the what the Chinese often the, the U.S. opposes corruption, opposes for integrity. The Chinese don't care so much about that, and if they can get what they want, there's no laws in China that are going to prevent them from, you know, giving a Bahamian government official. I'm not saying any in particular a little bank account in the Turks and Caicos or something like that. that that's a kind of, But if people think that, it may bring down the government if they think, oh, they've given in to the Chinese and to the detriment of people here in this country. Am I, am I th- yeah. seeing that right? I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's even simpler than that in, in cases like these. It's, it's how do you convince the population that you, know, you have this big project that comes in and how do I, as a Bahamian, benefit from it when I don't get a job? You know, at the end of the day, you're like you're like outsourcing the project and you're outsourcing the jobs. Right, like, right, what's right, the right. direct benefit to the right. population? And it's bad PR. So, of course, where do the Chinese turn to kind of whitewash the whole thing? IDB. So, they asked the IDB to host. The biggest event the IDB hosts every year is the annual meeting. And it brings in thousands of people. It's like this big show. It spends millions and millions of dollars. It's kind of a useless kind of foray. <laughs> and guess where they host it? At Bahamar, which was incomplete. But yet they brought in catering and they did this whole big party at Bahamar to normalize this behavior and this activity and pretend like this was like a great project. I mean, that's the level of like influence that the Chinese eventually were able to have over the IDB. So then in 2017, we say, look, this is not going to happen. It was a huge fight. Um, and then ultimately how I end up becoming president of the IDB is a really interesting story. It was never when then I was, so I went from the treasury department to being the U.S. representative at the, at the International Monetary Fund to then going to the National Security Council, and I was senior director for the Western Hemisphere, first under Ambassador Bolton, who was, who was the first to offer me the job, and then under Ambassador O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, when one of the two things that were very important to me, to us as an administration, and but I had put forward as a priority, is that whatever happens, you know, we don't know what happens in 2020, we need to leave legacies. And what was important is that we needed to have to reelect the Secretary General of the Organization of American States because for the first time in decades was an Organization of American States Secretary General Luis Almagro who actually believed in the causes of freedom and democracy. He came from the left. He was the former foreign minister to President Mujica in Uruguay who was obviously a, a, a socialist president. But he saw human rights, freedom, democracy in a nonpartisan manner. So he'll criticize dictatorships of the left and of the right. And he was an honest broker. So we needed to help getting him reelected, and we did, and supported him. And then we also needed to leave as a legacy a new president of the IDB who would keep the bank from further becoming a tool of the Chinese expansionism into Latin America and the Caribbean with our money. <laughs> it's like, like no-brainer, right? So early on, um, you know, we tried to work with some of our partners in seeking candidates. Um, eventually, then the Argentines had a candidate um, who obviously it was also at that time, it was a socialist government already in Argentina. Uh, it was not a particularly good candidate, one that we could not get behind, obviously, because they would run the bank like they ran Argentina. Right. So like there, there would go our money, you know, it would last, it would last a hot minute. Um 
And then Brazil wanted to have a candidate, which they took too long to present. And then ultimately, COVID hit. Everything shuts down. They presented a banker, which nobody knew. So in the region was faced with a grim choice. They were like, do we elect you know, an Argentine socialist that's going to bankrupt the bank? Or do we elect a Brazilian banker we've never heard of? And, you know, and then literally a bunch, a handful of presidents from the region. At the time, there was a story that had come out that I was going to go to the bank to become the executive vice president. My predecessor, obviously, because of what we did with China and the annual meeting in Chengdu and eventually not having it there, said absolutely not, became a big fight, whatever. And a bunch of presidents in the region said, Mauricio, you're like one of us. Why don't you run? I remember speaking to Ambassador O'Brien, to Secretary Mnuchin, and they said, well, look, if you can get the votes, see how others would react. The toughest part about winning is not the 50% plus, because obviously the United States has 30%, is you need to have 15 out of the 28 countries in the region support you. And in one day, 15 countries were like, we love it. And part of the reason they loved it is because they had seen over the last two decades how the United States had literally stepped away from not only the region, but the bank and how the Chinese had come in and taken over. And at that time, there was already more center, center right governments. And they really saw that an American president at the IDB was going to bring back U.S. interest into the IDB, U.S. capital into the IDB, and U.S. private sector into the IDB. And guess what? That's exactly what we did over two years and broke all records. But now there's a new pink tide in the region, right? They call it the the 21st century socialism 2.0. And at the end of the day, they don't care about development. They don't care about growth. They don't care about everything we did in the bank over the last two years, which was the most successful year in the history of the bank by far. We did last year $23.5 billion in financing. The most the bank had ever done was $17 billion. And we did it without a capital increase. We did it with by optimizing the balance sheet through historic savings and by mobilizing more from the private sector than ever in the history of the bank and with U.S. firms doing it. We had the best survey results ever for stakeholder uh, uh, satisfaction on transparency. We went up in our transparency index dramatically to become the top three in the world amongst IFIs. We brought in more for the first time because it's an extraordinarily sexist institution. We named the first female chief of staff in the history of the bank, the highest ranking Latin American woman in the history of the bank. Our representatives in each in the countries, uh, they're like ambassadors, think of them. They're extraordinarily influential. When I came in, only 10% of them were women. In one year, we were up to 46%. And it was hugely talented women that were in the bank and had hit a glass ceiling. We broke that glass ceiling for them in that regard. So the results were indisputable, but they didn't care. And as a matter of fact, I think that part of the reason why all of a sudden this kind of political warfare began and then the Biden administration jumped onto it is because this, and of course, remember when I ran, the one who did oppose me was the Biden campaign. The Biden campaign came out and said, no, the bank should be, you know, in the hands of the region, even though we have a 30% shareholding. So from day one, this was a campaign promise. Getting rid of me was a campaign promise of the Biden administration. And do you, do you know who put this in? I wouldn't think, I mean, Biden, he, he did concern himself with foreign affairs when he was in the Senate, but somebody must have been whispering this into his ear that uh, this is that we you know we shouldn't have an american president of the bank we shouldn't be upsetting i don't know argentina and i, I, I don't honduras whoever it's his latin american team and his latin american yeah. team which is there now yeah. now and by the way just look at the region look what they're doing mm. Mm. you know mm. i mean I, I mean look at this for example with argentina look mm. at this administration's relationship with argentina like it didn't happen because of COVID. But the fact that the Argentine president, who literally has nothing good to say about the United States and everything good to say about every single one of our foes, from Russia to Iran to Venezuela to Cuba, you name it, is their biggest apologist, gets a White House visit before 
the president of Ecuador, who is our ally, the president of Dominican Republic, who is our ally, the president of Uruguay, who is our ally. The message that, you know, this whole new version of 21st century socialism 2.0, I mean, look at Colombia. Yeah. yeah. Colombia is on its path to becoming a narco state for real. For real. Right. And we have more dictatorships than we used to. Right now, right now, look, I mean, Nicaragua. I mean, Nicaragua, obviously, Ortega is a bad, bad guy. He was, was, he had gone from democratically elected, well, from being a dictator to then becoming democratically elected to becoming authoritarian. Now he's becoming Kim (laughs) Jong-un because he realized there's no price to pay. They've literally arrested every, over the last, under this administration, they've arrested every single opposition member in the country every single one look at venezuela we just negotiated we just negotiated an exchange of american hostages or people unjustly detained to get into the state department lingo for drug dealers for maduro's wife's nephews who were accused of narcotics trafficking in the united states so we just now exchange drug dealers for American, quote unquote, hostages. And then we're surprised that over the last year, he's taken more American hostages than ever. And, and, we're, go- and we're going hat in hand to Venezuela to Maduro saying, by the way, can you produce a little more oil because prices are high and we don't want to produce American Meanwhile, oil. Meanwhile, while I'm at the IDB, so next door to Venezuela, you have Guyana. Yeah. Now, Guyana, democratically elected government. Uh, it's mostly American companies that are there doing the offshore exploration. Guyana is set to become by 2025 the largest per capita producer of oil and gas in the world, beating Qatar. Hmm. Okay. 30% of Guyana's debt is to China, huh. as previous governments have been very into, and 30% with the IDB. Now, when I was at the NSC, we worked during that time in the election and we we the democratic transition in Guyana was one of our priorities and we we got it yeah. it happened yeah. the current government wants to work with us wants to it's by the way it's Exxon it's Hess these are US firms that are there there's some Chinese firms but it's mostly American firms that are down there so they come to me at the IDB as president of the IDB and say hey we need help with the port facilities mm-hmm. and because you know they just the infrastructure That's they the have a capacity issue right so obviously, you would want the IDB with an American president to work with them on that. The Biden administration vetoed it because we don't support oil and gas projects. But then the war against after, fossil Russia's fuels. Invasion, after Russia's invasion, we go beg Maduro to go, by the way, and, and all under the guise of climate. But we now go beg Maduro to produce the dirtiest oil in the world. I mean, the dirtiest oil in the world, while right next door, you have probably the sweetest, cleanest oil in the world, because it's like, it's literally, you can almost put it in a gas tank. (laughs) So we don't allow the IDB to help Guyana with its infrastructure for oil and gas. And by the way, it could be the first, the first, imagine that, the first example of a country that go to go from developing to developed in Latin America and the Caribbean. And be democratic. And say- And be pro-American. And be democratic. And say, forget you. We're going to go sit down with Maduro, negotiate hostages, and give him, give Chevron a green light to keep producing the dirtiest oil in the world. And of course, Venezuela. And by the way, yeah. which is going to take forever because yeah. it's a disaster. And Venezuela, we're not going to go through it all now, but Venezuela's close ties with the Islamic Republic of Iran, it's close ties with China, it's close ties with Cuba, who essentially maintain its internal bureau, security bureaucracy. We only go through, but I just, I, I hope people who are listening understand what we're talking about. This is not just Venezuela, this is Venezuela and the network of all America's sworn enemies. I think that we're, as opposed to Guyana, which is sitting there. All right. All right. Let's, let's go for a minute and talk about the accusations that have been made against you. Let's just, let's talk about that head on. I'm going to, this following, I'm going to just read a few. This is from an AP, Associated Press Report. Why AP? Because this is what most people are going to read. So let's, talk. So, recent AP report, quote, executive directors of the Inter-American Development Bank, 
voted unanimously Thursday to recommend firing a former Trump official as president of the Washington-based institution, a person familiar with the vote said. The move came after an investigation conducted at the bank's board's request determined that Mauricio Claver Carone violated ethic rules by favoring a top aide with whom he had a romantic relationship, according to a report obtained by the Associated Press. Among those pushing for Claver Carone's removal is the Biden administration, which said it was troubled by Claver Carone's refusal to fully cooperate with an independent probe. I'm going to keep quoting. His creation of a climate of fear of retaliation among staff and borrowing countries has forfeited the confidence of the bank staff and shareholders and necessitates a change in leadership, a Treasury Department spokesman said. Claver Caroni remained defiant in the aftermath of the vote, saying in a statement that replacing him would somehow, this is the AP, would somehow embolden China which saw its influence in the bank expand dramatically during the Obama administration. He provided no evidence to back that claim. Of course, the reporters can't look for evidence themselves. According to investigators, he is denied ever having, now or before, a romantic relationship with his longtime right hand. Oh, not odd phrasing, but I think they're referring to your chief of staff. Um, let me let you uh, talk well, about first that. First of all, let me, just, let me just make one point clear. When the actual vote took place the first country to vote against me was China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that that's abundantly clear. And the evidence is abundant. And actually, the AP reporter who wrote that story knows knows better because when that reporter was at Bloomberg, he wrote the story about the mismanagement of the bank in 2008, 2009. So anyhow, that that's unfortunate. I actually didn't read the story, but um, that's unfortunate in that regards. Look, here's the facts. As I mentioned to you, the day after the annual meeting where we presented the historic reforms uh, to the bank, an anonymous letter came in and it claimed, you know, essentially that I was having uh, a, 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 a relationship uh, with my chief of staff, uh, that um, that the evidence of it was my ex-wife, uh, that and that three people in the office that I moved out uh, were, were the cause of it. Uh, and so then therefore uh, that that was retaliation. And that you gave her a, a raise. And that I gave her and that I gave her a raise. Let me just make one thing clear. The report itself says there is no evidence, quote unquote, there is no evidence to substantiate an existing relationship between me and my chief of staff. One. Two, that every claim made in that anonymous allegation turned out to be false. There was no retaliation. As a matter of fact, my ex-wife did an affidavit saying it was all not true. And that there was no, oh, and then the other thing was that there was that uh, expenses in travel. When we traveled, it was to uh, foster that relationship, which is obviously also not true. And the report says, and there's no evidence that so, any- And by the way, and, and, and by, look, people, let me just say this, people in offices have relationships. This is not like a secret or trouble. Rules, but, but, but I'm going to ask you, and I don't know if there was a rule that said you can't, but you want to say whether you had a relationship or didn't have a relationship or whatever. So no, the rules of the bank, yeah. and I read the rules- I'm a lawyer. Yeah. I'm kind of a stickler yeah. for rules. From day one, the rules of the bank say very clearly, if you are in an existing relationship, if you have a relationship with a subordinate, you're to report it to the bank and that from there on, that person will be moved to another supervisor. I was not in a relationship. And as a matter of fact, the investigation concluded that I was not in a relationship. And as a matter of fact, Treasury statement cannot say that I violated any rules. I was, by the way, the resolution that, supersedes my contract because they don't even say I got fired. They supersedes my contract, gives no cause. No, I know. And they try, they're not actually saying you did it. They're saying you created a climate of fear of retaliation. How subjective. I was fearing retaliation. If what? If I did what? If I criticized. And you know what the irony is? You know who's being retaliated right now in the bank? I All of the Americans know. from the previous administration Everybody that I brought in you. to work on my team. They are right now, as we speak. Yeah. They are retaliating against all of the Americans from the previous administration that I brought in to work at the bank to break every record to help the countries in the region. Now, in regards to the salaries, when I came into the bank, imagine this is an institution that for 60 years was literally closed off to scrutiny. One of the things that we did that my chief of staff led, think of this. There is a $100 million account per year for technical assistance. Think of it as a slush fund. The way it would work was essentially every, every year, it's a first come, first serve grab bag amongst managers for countries that they want to favor. 
And then from there, it's money for their pet projects and then to hire all their friends as consultants. She led the effort, she amongst other things, but that one really kind of brought on the, 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 the disdain of those that wanted the status quo, whereby you essentially had to have almost like an RFP kind of procedure, right? Where you kind of made a proposal, it came to us and we said, okay, how are you going to use this money? What is it for? So that this no longer would be a $100 million grab bag. We made some tough choices there. We made some tough decisions and we really shook up that status quo. When I came in, they wouldn't even tell me what people, their predecessors had made, how much they were earning, their salaries, et cetera. It took almost a year for me to find out what her predecessor, and they were totally undercutting her the whole time. I had two advisors in the office of the presidency, my chief of staff and an executive advisor who was a man. And by the way, notice they don't talk about it because I gave him a raise as well. <laughs> right. These are the people you depend on. Yes. Right. I gave him a, a raise as well. Yeah. When I found out what both of their predecessors made, I simply matched them to their predecessors. And let me tell you just something about matched. my chief That's of staff. That's all you did. That's gave them what, what, what their predecessors As a matter of fact, she was still making a little bit less than her predecessor because she, she wasn't entitled to some of the benefits as my predecessor. And by the way, as her predecessor. And let me just say this about my chief of staff. It is the, she is the smartest, hardest working person I have ever met in my life. She was my deputy at the National Security Council. She's a 15-year CIA veteran, was the best senior analyst for Latin America and the Caribbean at the agency, then came to the National Security Council, was a deputy director, deputy senior director, went to the Development Finance Corporation, was a managing director. It is the most qualified person to ever hold the job of chief of staff at the Inter-American Development Bank. And what they're criticizing is that she was making the same as her predecessor, who was a country economist, no offense to country economists at the IDB, but don't have an ounce of the experience that she has, that's sexism. And by the way, that they say that I gave her a raise, but they don't mention that I gave him a raise. And by the way, that in the office of the presidency alone, despite these quote unquote, these raises, I saved $1.2 million in salaries. Mm. There was 20 useless positions in that office. And I said, I don't need 20 uses. But of course, those were important back in the days because that's how you hired a person from this country and you had the patronage politics. Right. Crony patronism. The, right. That's how it worked. Yeah, they, I said, I don't need all of these people. So I cut 10 positions. I had a small team that worked 24-7 during COVID when there was nobody even in the building. When, by the way, I found out that over a quarter of the people at the bank were violating their G4 visa status because they were nowhere near the DC area and they were all like living out COVID back in their countries, obviously getting paid in dollars handsomely or in Florida or in Arizona, God knows where. And this team was in the bank 24-7 every day working hard and that's what they're begrudging. And by the way, I'm not like... I get it. I don't even criticize because I had never experienced, I mean, I'm of Latin American descent, but I'm an American. I was born in Miami and, and I'm of Latin descent. I had never experienced, I mean, the bank is a reflection of the region. I'd always heard about the sexism. I'd always heard about the cronyism. I've heard about all that, but I never experienced it firsthand. That corruption, I'd never experienced it firsthand. It's real. It's very, very real. And it's one of the reasons Latin America hasn't developed the way it should have. You take and it. doesn't want to develop. Here's what I've realized. I, I realized that the region doesn't want to develop because here's why. Then when they say that I'm, you know, I bullied them. And this is all about Argentina, right? Because I actually, I actually, for the first time, imagine this. The president of the Inter-American Development Bank, for the first time, in regards to loans of liquid money, so not even for an infrastructure project, but there is $500 million in liquidity that I was supposed to give Argentina as part of an IMF program. It's just cash. I just give it to them. And there's, they disappear with it. In a day, it's gone, you know, betting badly on the dollar somehow. And I said, no, I need to make sure first that they are truly committed to these structural reforms. Because if not, we're giving them away. Meanwhile, the IMF is upset because they're saying, 
oh, we need to get paid back. And I'm like, what is this, a Ponzi scheme? Like, am I giving Argentina money to pay the IMF back? By the way, that's the international financial architecture. We can have a whole conversation about that. It's wholly broken. Mm-hmm. But just because I hold, for the first time, a president of Inter-American Development Bank holds countries like Argentina that continue this cycle of coming to these banks and sucking money from these banks and saying, how about we actually make sure they are doing something so that this doesn't happen again. Because the goal should be that you're weaned off the development banks and go to the market. But these countries, because of institutions like the IDB, these countries have no incentive to make the structural reforms necessary to then compete in the market. Because you have this entitlement grab bag, low interest compared to the market, So then therefore, you can do whatever you want, have all your populist short-term policies, and when they fall flat on their face, the IDB bails you out. So in in a sense, this development bank, the bank whose mission is to help these countries develop, is retarding development by giving them every reason not to do so and bailing them out when they fail to do so. And it is the reason why the experiment of an American president that actually held them to structural reforms and standards had to fail because if not, guess what? They were going to have to do stuff. They were going to have to change. And then you get a lot of the people in the media saying another thing, I don't know if it's AP or elsewhere, saying, well, customarily, the president has always been a Latin American as if there's something terrible about having an American in this position um, worrying about American interests, but also worrying about whether or not the development bank is actually facilitating development. And yet, and yet, you know, ironically, you know, Colombia with the new government, uh, was one of the ones that was leading the charge uh, against me. Ironically, the finance minister who fancies himself as a future IDB president, apparently, yet he wanted to be World Bank president 10 years ago, despite the arrangement where the United States has that presidency. Yet Mexico didn't complain when Agustin Cortez wanted to be managing director of the IMF when the Europeans traditionally hold that position. Hey, look, I ran, when I ran, I said, may the best man or woman win. I don't care where they're from. If you can run, if you're from one of the member countries and can, under the rules, put this, have this candidacy, go for it. And one thing, one uh, just factual point we didn't mention, but I want to is, it, when you when you won that, you were supposed to be in this position of president for five years. The whole idea, and why a five year term? Well, you can, the idea is to straddle administrations. The idea is that this shouldn't be simply one. And yet, the Biden administration decides, no, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of him. And by the way, I gotta say, this is not the only. You're not the only person who the Biden administration said, oh, we're gonna get rid of somebody who's supposed to straddle the administrations because we don't like them. Um, thinking particularly of Michael Pack of the Agency for Global Media. He was supposed to be the first CEO. Again, he's supposed to straddle administration's first day in office. Biden puts, push, pushes him out. I'm also thinking, by the way, and I'm not an expert on this, Paul Wolfowitz at the World Bank, accusations very similar to the accusations made against you. I've never found, I, I've never credited them. I know Paul Wolf a little but I don't think that I, I but I, again, they put, they managed to push him out. And right now, David Amalpas at the World Bank, you got people like Al Gore saying he should be fired because he doesn't adopt my climate change policies. He at the World Bank is still worrying about poverty. I'm not, Al Gore's not worrying about in poverty in places like Africa. He's worrying about the use of fossil fuels. He wants to change the mission, and he thinks the guy should be fired. And I'm sure he's telling this to President Biden. I just the reason I point all this out is one might say there's a pattern here. <laughs> Look, here's 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 the bottom line. So, by the way, Paul Wolfowitz, the investigation against him showed that he didn't violate any rules of the bank. Yet there was retaliation from the European countries that wanted payback for Iraq, and obviously they withdrew support from him. And then it became very difficult just for the United States to sustain him. And then eventually it was all uh, agreed to and, and discussed. By the way, to Paul Wolfowitz's benefit at the end of the day, obviously it was the Bush administration still, and they actually had the decency to talk to him throughout this whole process. I have yet to hear from the Treasury Department. Let me make it worse. This happened, the anonymous letter came in six months ago. I have yet, when we talk about cooperation, that's one of the things you talked about. The, I have yet to hear from the bank's general counsel or anybody in the legal department or anybody in the bank. I have yet to be formally presented the anonymous letter. I have yet to be presented the final report. 
I had yet in look in a normal world the way it would have worked. And by the way, I was at the Treasury Department and we dealt with issues and other iffies. We would have sat down with the president and said, and, and by the way, with real stuff. Like you've had issues in the African Development Bank for millions and millions of dollars in contracts to a cousin. You had in the European uh, Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the president there had actually was was tapping into into the director's emails. Um, you had Christine Lagarde was convicted of a three hundred million dollar negligence fraud, and it was kind of great. Kristalina was carrying water for the Chinese and fudging numbers, and yet it was always discussed. And it was no one has talked to me. When I find it so rich that they're talking about cooperation when nobody had the decency of sitting down with me from day one and saying, hey, Mauricio, here's the anonymous letter. Here's the process. We're going to hear the rules because the bank has rules of how you do these investigations. They violated every single rule in this investigation against me. We've counted, my lawyers counted 15 rules that they violated. And yet they have yet to be able to show that I violated a single rule. Can you sue, by the way? For Look, so one behavior? of the exemptions on the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act uh, for obviously the bank hides behind its privileges and immunities, which I now like to call, you know, privileges and impunity. <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of these institutions do this. Um, but one of the one of the exemptions is for misrepresentation, defamation, et cetera. And we're still actually negotiating. We're still, my lawyers are still trying to figure out to get information from them on even what their contractual obligations still are uh, in that regards. And by the way, now they're retaliating against other Americans. So I have never, so here's what what what, what upsets me. What upsets me is not, and I said it from the day one, and I said it to, you know, even the board, although I wasn't able to present my case. I've said this on multiple occasions. If you don't like me because I'm an American, my contract, they can remove me for and for no reason. They can just remove me if they just have a majority. And this was a Biden campaign promise. So it was okay. I get it. So you can remove me because I'm an American. So you don't want this American experiment to, to succeed? Fine. You can remove me because I'm a Republican? Fine. You can remove me because I work for the Trump administration? Fine. You have a right to do all. Hey, you have a right to remove me because I'm a Miami Cuban American who is staunchly pro-democracy. And of course, we get stereotyped. You know, I, this isn't the first stereotype. I've had many stereotypes in my life as the hawk, of being hawk. Um, but you have no right to defame me. And that's been my issue. It's not about the job. Hey, good luck. You know, I gave it my best shot. And no one, not, by the way, I haven't had a single criticism on our record. Because no one has ever matched our record, nor ever will match our record in the bank. But this was about how you, by definition, so if you have a process that had no rules, oh, and then get this. And here's when I literally said, wow, this is just totally political. The firm that was chosen to do the investigation was Davis Polk. Fine. The general counsel of the Treasury Department, who had just gotten confirmed two months before, was the head of the investigations practice at Davis Polk. The two lawyers that did the investigation were his mentees. Look, when I was at the Treasury Department, we would have not even, the optics, we would we'd have said, look, if you, you know as well as I do, there are dozens of firms in D.C. that love to do investigation. That's great. It's a great practice. You make millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, and, you're, and most of them are former prosecutors that still have the badge in their head, but don't. Uh, but have no standards of evidence. So you can just, you know, you do, it's, it's a great, it's a great living. There's tons of them. We would never, the optics of using the firm. The appearance of conflict of interest is not conflict of interest. This is my old firm. The, I'm going to reward them from the government. Of the politically nominated general counsel of the Treasury Department, that his firm and his practice, because he was the chair of the practice, and his mentees were the ones that did this, stinks. We would have never done that just for optics purposes. And the media would never have never allowed you to get away with it without – It's not in the AP story. Of course it's not. Of course it's not because I'm – you know, as, a, as an old media guy, I am so disillusioned with how incurious and how propagandistic so much of the media have become. And they, they're not doing the job that, that now, hopefully the, meant to do. Hopefully the good news is that there should be some oversight. And and hopefully in the oversight from Capitol Hill and other places, people will start asking well, for. Well, we'll see. And obviously, emails. we haven't seen evidence of this yet, have we? Yeah. Not well, oh, there's. I think. I think. You think I, it might been, happen? I've, I've 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 gotten a lot of phone calls. Obviously, we're in election season, and everyone's seeing what's happening in November. Um, 
But I think it's very it would be very interesting to see all of the communications between Davis Polk and the Office of the General Counsel at the Treasury Department. All right. Um, I have two last questions for you, but if there's other things you want to bring up, you can. One is just – I just want to point out that we're talking about Chinese influence in Latin America, and that's that's dangerous at a time when we have – Really, a cold war going on with China, and China is trying to displace America as, as as a leader in the world. But we also have Russian influence. We also have Iranian influence and Hezbollah influence, not least in Argentina, of course. Um, we have an increasing number of, uh, of of dictatorships. We have Venezuela. We, we, anyhow, I just wanted to make a mention of of all this because Latin America is going in a seems to me is going in a very bad direction and this is america's backyard this is the, our hemisphere um and i don't see the biden administration trying to change this trend actually i see them accelerating this trend well and the way that it the reason it's accelerating is because there's no time there has been no worse time to be a friend of the united states and latin america and the caribbean than during this administration our friends and allies are literally last in line for everything, while the White House and the State Department literally can't run fast enough to help the new, the 21st century socialist governments of the region. I mean, look, the Secretary of State right now, he went to Colombia, to Chile, and to Peru. Why didn't he go to Ecuador, Paraguay, Uruguay, Panama, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, like the countries that are our allies? And if you just go from beginning, go, go from top down, like look what's happening. You have the worst migration crisis, illegal migration crisis in history, in history. We've lost, like we've literally picked fights and lost most of our allies in Central America. Haiti is becoming beyond the failed state is going to become very dangerous um, it, it, in regards to organized crime and and by the way, and also the influences of others. I mean, our actors, global actors are looking at Haiti and saying, hey, this is a great opportunity because it's literally lawless. You have, you know, Panama is being overridden by an increase in migration crisis because more Venezuelans are now leaving more than ever because they realize Wow, there's these negotiations taking place and status quo. Colombia can become a narco state. Argentina is literally hanging by by a thread. There's really no good news coming out of the region any which way, shape, or form. Um, and so, so, so it's a problem. Now with China, I think the China thing is really interesting. I, I divide China's influence in the region into three things, which is what we try to actually – uh, do. There's a sovereign lending side. Now, the United States, this is like what I learned and how I ended up at the IDB. The United States can't compete with China's sovereign lending because guess what? We don't do sovereign lending anymore, right? Like the last time we did that, we had those sovereign loan guarantees that I think we have one left over with Jordan from 20 years ago and, and nobody wants those on their balance sheet. That's why what we were doing at the IDB was so important because it was really the only place that we could help as a 30% shareholder countries that needed sovereign lending, but not as a crutch, as a facilitator in times of crisis, right? Uh, in that regards. Then there's China as a trading partner. And there it's, you know, look, in the same way that, you know, the United States seeks to export to China, the countries in the region are exporting more and more to China. And it's becoming, China's becoming a larger trading partner for countries in South America than the United States. Just about all of them already have China as their number one trading partner. That's an issue. And then it's China as an investor, right? Uh, and that's what we were trying to fix. I think that that's another opportunity. The toughest is the trade part because if you have soy and you want to sell it, you need to sell it to wherever you have copper, et cetera. But one thing is selling them and owning it. And another thing is what China was doing, then coming in as an investor and taking over strategic assets. And that's what we were doing was so important. And now- it's up in the air. We became, and this is another accomplishment that I'm very proud of, we became the only institution in the world, other than the government of Japan that was had a program similar, that was financing nearshoring. So we, last year, did $4.5 billion in financing nearshoring. So essentially companies that were based in China 
that wanted to bring their operations to the Western Hemisphere, we literally would finance their move. So we we wouldn't be relying on strategic supply chains to China for things like solar panels, for um, rare earth minerals, for wind t- turbines. Here's the most nonsensical. Here's the most nonsensical supply chain of all. Sixty percent or more of the world's lithium is in South America, Argentina, Bolivia, uh, Chile, some Peru, some Colombia. All of that lithium, literally just about all of it, is exported to China. The manufacturing of the electric batteries, et cetera, takes place in China, and then it's exported to the US. That supply chain should be south to north. It should not be. So my goal, what we were trying to do was to eliminate the zigzag. And by the way, <laughs> that's just lithium, copper, same thing. And again, these are all vital to what, it's, what are called renewable energy sources. If we, if we decide, as the Biden administration wants to, that we should get off of fossil fuels and not be on these renewables, the supply chain now goes right back to China, even when they're using these metals and rare earth minerals that come from our backyard in Latin America, where they could, as you say, come south to north, and we could be doing it, but no, we're going to be dependent on China because we trust China, right? This is a great idea to become dependent on China for uh, as an, for an energy source. This makes no sense whatsoever. It should be so obvious. At all. And in all these things we did, by the way, in shutting down the Chinese funds, in bringing in Taiwan as a co-financing partner. That's another thing we did over the last year. Which Beijing did not like. Did not and actually directly threatened me on more than one occasion over it. But we brought in Taiwan as a co-financing partner. So I shut down these Chinese funds. I'm getting threatened by the Chinese. We're doing the nearshoring, which by the way, the Europeans didn't love the nearshoring things. They thought it was a competition. You have the socialists in the region against me, et cetera. But yet everything we're doing is supposedly what the Biden administration at least talks about. And throughout that time, I got zero backing and support from the Biden administration. I was literally all out on my own. So naturally, when the Biden administration says, we want you out because you know, you're too aggressive and you're creating a culture of fear and retaliation. By the way, the report investigation says there's no evidence of any retaliation against anybody. Now they'd say, oh, I created a culture. There's, there are people that are, that have fear of retaliation. Give me a break. Unsafe. Give me a break. Unsafe. Unsafe. Yeah. All right. Very final questions. I, I, I mean, and you can probably answer this pretty quickly and easily. The future of the IDB, I guess it just goes back to the same old used to be. It goes back to a place with crony patronage, with Chinese influence and privileges increasing. That's where we're, where we're heading, I, I assume, right? I, 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 the IDB has some very, talented people and can be an extraordinary asset. I really worked hard. I wanted the IDB not to just be, you know, the premier uh, iffy for the region. I wanted to be the best iffy in the world. And we were like, we were on the, we were on the cusp of being the first iffy to really become private sector focused, to be really create like a whole new model for private sector mobilization, where we came in to have the private sector, like we, we literally created the projects, we de-risked the private sector, then we kind of, then we executed and then we packaged them and distributed to private sector. Like how an iffy can deal with trillion dollar problems with billion dollar balance sheets. Like we were doing that with the support of the private sector, market-based solutions, et cetera. And we were really onto something. We were really, really moving. Um, but the bank doesn't want it. The bank doesn't want it, and the region doesn't want it. The region wants what they've been doing for the last 60 years. They really just want the easy money uh, with no conditions, with no oversight. Uh, They want the political positions for their friends and their colleagues. Um, And they want the quid pro quos. And that's unfortunate because... Um, I think we were onto something really, 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 really important, but I'm, I leave skeptical. And by the way, just look at the candidates that are emerging. Like there thus far, I have yet to see a non-socialist candidate. Mauricio, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for being so 
frank about all this and telling us all this. I think anybody who's listened, I certainly have learned huge amounts. And um, I, I hope we can get a lot of people to listen to this program, people in Congress, people in this administration and the next administration, because um, the news you bring is not good news, but uh, it's important to get the truth out there. And what, what you've talked about today, I, I, I haven't seen in the, in, the, in the mainstream media, so I'm, I'm glad we're doing it. Thank you again. So Thank much. you, Cliff, for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And thanks to all of you who are with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.